Amen. Good morning. My name is Chuck Betters. I'm the senior pastor here at Reach Church. And this morning we are continuing a series that I have entitled A New Level of Good. A New Level of Good. And I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Could you say it again? Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And as I was reading this passage that follows the beginning of chapter 2, we'll get to that in a minute, you know, what came to me was that it's not a new level of easy, It's a new level of good. What we need in our lives is not a new level of easy because the concepts we're talking about and the concepts that Paul unpacks in the letter to the Philippians are anything but easy. They're not a new level of easy, but a new level of good. I want to read to you, this is from the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's uh, about the character, his name's Edmund. And Edmund, uh, they they come to this island, and Edmund is um, rebellious, and he's cranky, and he's, he's one of the characters who's antagonistic in the Chronicles of Narnia all the way through. And it's in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, and, and they come to an island, and Edmund, of course, makes his way to a dragon's lair. Because the dragon's lair, because where the gold is, um, and he falls asleep, and as he falls asleep, the, the carcass of the, of the dragon actually overtakes him, and he becomes a dragon. So he becomes a dragon, and then Aslan, who is the Christ type, the lion, and he had this interaction together. And it makes me think of this idea of, of, of it not being easy, but it being a new level of good. Listen to what Edmund says. He says this, And it led me a long way into the mountains. So Aslan leads Edmund a long way into the mountains. There was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts but it is such fun to see it coming away. 
he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it to myself. The other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. So there's this image of Edmund, us, that we're dragons. And we want to get out of this dragon skin. We want to get out of this knobbly, rough skin. And we, we kind of peel at it and pick at it. And it's extremely painful. But then, just as Edmund comes into the presence of Jesus, Aslan's the Christ type, it's Jesus who peels that skin off of us. It's Jesus who peels that, those scales off of us. And it's painful. And that new level of good to get rid of that skin, to get rid of that, those scales, and to become human again, that's painful. It's not easy. But it's a new level of good. You know, we say that we want a new level of good until it becomes hard. Until our, our worldview is challenged. Until things in our lives that have been there forever are challenged. And the Holy Spirit of Christ says, what about that dragon skin? What about this scale? Before we can even get to a new level of good, we need to realize that it's not a new level of easy, but a new level of good. These are difficult concepts that we're unpacking. These are challenging concepts that challenge the core of who we are. For instance, last Sunday, we asked and answered the question, what is truth? You know, more specifically, how do you get to truth? We asked what needs to happen before even the smartest person arrives at truth. Because it's not just getting to the truth, it's actually acting on the truth. It's knowing the truth and the truth setting us free to act. And what we said last week was that we can't even receive the truth. We can't handle the truth. Even if we know what the truth is, we won't act on it until our hearts break for what breaks God's heart. And that's not easy. That's hard. And we saw that the only way that you can not only know the truth, but accept the truth and handle the truth is for your heart to break. That's how we get to that new level of good. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I mean, does it break your heart when you have offended your spouse? And that's a tough one. So you've hurt your spouse. It doesn't matter what the issue is. What matters is that you've hurt them. Does that fact alone break your heart? It's only then that you can receive the truth and act on the truth. Does it break your heart when your children sway from the faith? Or does it just anger you? 
Does this make you angry? If it, if it breaks your heart, you'll have something to offer them. If it just makes you angry, you're going to debate with them about all of these extraneous issues that have nothing to do with Jesus. Happens all the time. Does your heart break for what breaks God's heart? That's not a new level of, of easy. It's a new level of good. We saw this last week when we talked about race relations. You know, you don't have to be where I'm at um, when it comes to race. You don't. I'm not where you're at. You're not where I'm at. You know, if, if you were where I'm at on the issue of race and things like this, I would just be preaching to the choir, and that doesn't help anyone. I'm here to provoke you. I'm here to get you to think to stir something up in your soul. If that's happening, if you're getting angry when you're hearing me speak of some of these issues, that's actually good. That's actually moving you to a new level of good. To share what I see the Word of God saying about race issues, and then you wrestle with it, that's good. You may not land exactly where I've landed. In fact, you probably won't. But you would have been stretched and provoked to think to not only sympathize with those you see who are struggling with racist attitudes towards them, to not just sympathize, but to empathize with them. But first, our proud hearts need to break. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step too. At least nothing, whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. Because if your heart's hardened, if your first response to being provoked to having your heart stirred with something that you haven't thought of before when you see the scriptures opened up. If that's your first thought is to be defensive, your heart hasn't really been broken yet for what breaks God's heart. And you certainly aren't ready to speak truth. True or false? Police brutality against African Americans breaks God's heart. True. True or false, rioting and looting breaks God's heart. True. True or false, division and hate between races breaks God's heart. True. Start there. That these things break God's heart and allow them to break your heart. Does your heart break for what breaks God's heart? Imagine yourself, envision yourself as Edmund during this time and allow God to undress you. Allow God to peel away that rough, scaly, disgusting dragon stuff that we've been living in. We all have it. This past week, we interviewed an African-American police officer from Newark, and he had done a video that had gone viral. And on his video, what he did was he said, you know, all police officers aren't like the stuff that you see on the news. It was essentially his message that not all police officers are like this, that police officers can also be heroes. And so we interviewed him this past week. And as I heard him answer his, uh, some of the questions, I realized that he had landed in a different place 
than others I had spoken to about race. You see, he, his position is he's colorblind when it comes to race. This is his position. I pressed him on it. He said, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, red, yellow. He just sees a person. That's his position. Great. There's biblical support for that position. Philippians 2.2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. Galatians 3.26-28, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. My dad pastored a church in the inner city of Philadelphia uh, between my ages of being born and four years old. And I still remember my very first thought. I've shared this before. It's a little bit strange, but my first thought was standing on the back. It wasn't really a back patio because our whole yard was concrete. But standing in the back of our house, the parsonage of the house, and looking out and thinking, I think, therefore I am. I didn't really think that that deeply, but it was my very first thought, and I thought, I'm two years old. I can still see my backyard, which was a concrete slab. And that was the beginning of the thoughts of a tortured artist. You know, I can still remember my first thoughts of consciousness. I was too young to notice that the majority of the church and the majority of the people around me were African American. I was colorblind. My mom told me later on that she would have playdates date, play with other moms within the congregation. And there was one time in particular where me and another little boy, that they, we had a playdate together. And they put us in a bathtub together. I mean, sorry about too much information, but I was three years old or four years old. And here I was sitting in a bathtub with an African-American little boy. And my mom tells me that the other mom just started crying and said, I never would imagine that I would be able to see this day where a white woman would be okay with putting her son in a bathtub with my son. You know, I was colorblind, three years old. I didn't care. That little boy didn't care. We were colorblind. I remember my dad playing on a church basketball team, and he was the only white guy on us. He hears the pastor, and the entire team is African-American. And I still remember my kind of view from the bleachers. I remember my earliest childhood in just images. And I remember seeing him, and they were playing a totally white church basketball team. I only know that they were white because my dad told the story later on, because I was colorblind. I remember, you know, music and passion for music within that church. Most, you know, don't have vivid memories of their earliest years. Perhaps I only have them because we visited so much and we continued contact so much even after we moved to Delaware. I'll give you an example. A few days after my brother died, he died in a car accident in 1993. A few days after that, a group from my dad's church in the inner city of Philadelphia, African-Americans, a group, came to our house 
and they filled our family room. And I remember at that time, there was, there was a lot of laughing. My dad told some stories. I remembered some times. There was lots of laughter, even a couple of days after my brother died. And then there was a lot of crying. Because you know why? There was no one sitting in that room who was worried about race. We were all colorblind. We were all one in Christ. And we began to pray, and that room vibrated with prayer. I'll never forget it. It was like a pregnancy. It was like giving birth. The room was giving birth. They were lamenting for us, crying out in prayer. I still get filled up thinking about it. And we were one in Christ. There was nobody sitting there thinking about color at that point. There was no one thinking about color when you have a little white baby and a little black baby sitting in a bathtub together. You're thinking about color at that point. It's colorblind. This police officer sat right on the stage and he said, I don't, I don't see color. He's an African-American police officer. Listen, if you're listening to me right now and you're saying, great, I really wish my niece or my spouse, or my coworker, or this person on Facebook, or whoever could hear this sermon, or that person who's been marching in protests could hear this, so that they would know that there's no difference between white people and black people. If that's what you're thinking right now, or if you're kind of relieved to hear Pastor Chuck that he isn't going off the deep end, and he's kind of back into my worldview and back into my lane. If that's your attitude right now, your heart isn't broken. Yes, we are one in Christ. Yes, the blood of Christ isn't black or white, but it is red. It covers all of our sins. But there's also the other side of the coin. Because on Friday, I did a Zoom call with an African-American professor from University of Delaware. Did a Zoom call together, and we had a two-hour discussion about race issues. And he's done research on this issue of colorblindness. And he said, you absolutely need to see someone and see their color. You absolutely need to see the color of their skin. You absolutely need to put yourself in their position. You absolutely need to become like them to not only sympathize, but empathize to put yourself in their shoes. You absolutely need to walk in their shoes. He said, when everyone else is done talking about race, he will still be black and he will still be dealing with it. And guess what? He also has biblical support for his conviction that colorblindness isn't that great. Philippians 2 verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became one of us. He didn't only sympathize with us. He didn't just empathize with us. He became one of us. The young mom who cried when I was put in the bathtub with her son, you know, wasn't colorblind. 
what led to those tears. She wasn't colorblind at all. She, the basketball team from the inner city that my dad played on wasn't colorblind either. My dad tells the story of taking those guys and, into a, a Christian campground that was all white and all hell broke loose because of the racism. They weren't colorblind either. So which position is right? Just tell us what to believe. Tell us how to think. If your heart is broken for the fact that we're even having this conversation, you'll be able to easily see that both positions are extremely relevant to us and both have a lot of truth. Could it be that each one of us needs to, you know, deal with the person standing in front of us and to deal with them how they want to be dealt with? To maybe put ourselves in their shoes. So one African-American may need you to be colorblind, another not at all. You say, that's confusing. What do they want? Well, if your heart is breaking for what breaks God's heart, you're not going to be as confused. You're not going to be as frustrated because your, your heart is breaking for what breaks God's heart and you're standing in front of a friend whoever it may be, and you're relating to them as Christ related to us, whatever that means in their life. The bottom line is, do you live in such a way where it's my life for me or my life for others? That is a new level of good, and that is not easy. I hope you can feel the skin being pulled away. Again, you don't need to land exactly where I'm at, but you need to have the skin pulled away, whatever that looks like. You can only live a my life for others' life if your heart is broken for what breaks God's heart. Clement, who was a friend of Paul in AD 90, he wrote, We know many among ourselves, this is of Christians, who have given themselves up to bonds in order that they might ransom others. In other words, they went into debt so that they could ransom and buy someone else out of slavery. Many, too, have surrendered themselves, surrendered themselves to slavery. Can you imagine? That with the price with which they received for themselves, they might provide food for others. Wow. How far we've strayed from that. And so we saw last week that the way that we are able to receive truth is for our hearts to be broken for what breaks God's heart. That's not a new level of easy, but a new level of good. So after Paul has established his credibility, we looked at that last week. We saw the ethos of that last week. In chapter 1, he establishes his credibility when he's making a truth claim. After he has established pathos, which is his concern for the people, their concern for their own needs, all of chapter 1, he launches into the logos in chapter 2. That's the truth. That's a series of true statements of a logical progression of facts. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What is it that we give to people? What is it that once our hearts have been broken over whatever issue it may be, what is it that we have to offer? We have a person to offer. The truth is Jesus. That's what we have to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Jesus. So we are only ready to hear the truth after our hearts are broken for what breaks God's heart. Listen. And that truth that's revealed to us by Paul in chapter 2 is a person. It's Jesus. Now, there's been some discussions this past week, even amongst pastors. Um, the idea is that, you know, when we say things like nothing but Jesus as an answer, or Jesus is the answer, I mean, those things can become cliches, of course, if you don't unpack what it means. But there's even been some pastors who've said, you know, it's more than just Jesus. There's more. If that's just the answer, Look at all of the good people who have done good things for culture. It can't just be Jesus. That can't just be the answer. I mean, listen, it's easy to believe in a God. Romans tells us that we can look up in the skies, we look at the heavens, and we can see plainly that there is a creator, there is a God. But Jesus is a stumbling block. Belief in Jesus isn't easy. Following Jesus isn't easy. But it is a new level of good. Jesus is the answer. If it's just a cliche, then of course he's not. But when you think about the life, death, resurrection, the teachings of Jesus, that is the answer. That is the answer for everything that we see around us. I mean, people get upset about what's called the exclusivity of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through him. That's called the exclusivity of Jesus when it comes to salvation. That's how we're saved. We're saved only through Jesus. That Jesus is the only way to the Father. And people have a very big problem with that. But the exclusivity of Christ needs to go beyond the point of salvation and into everything that we do. All of our sanctification, that's how we grow in our faith. All of life... That's why we say nothing but Jesus. What is our response to marriage issues? Nothing but Jesus. It's not a cliche. If it stops there, it is. But if it, you take it to where Paul takes it in Philippians 2, humbled himself, became one of us, even to death on a cross. If you have marriage issues, the answer is nothing but Jesus. Because if a husband would love his wife... As Christ loved the church and laid himself down for the church, laying down your life for your wife, a my life for you existence, and vice versa, problems would be a lot less, wouldn't they? Just that one principle. What is our response to wayward children? Nothing but Jesus. 
You know, instead of being the kind of parent who gets angry and who ends up debating with your children over all kinds of extraneous issues that have nothing to do with Jesus, we talked about that earlier. Nothing but Jesus, Luke 15. That the prodigal son, his father, was on the porch waiting for his son. He runs out to greet his son who had come home after destruction and wasting money. And he runs to him and he jumps on him and hugs him. He doesn't ask him for repentance. He doesn't ask him for forgiveness. He doesn't ask him if he's changed. He sees movement towards him and he runs to him. Nothing but Jesus. Try that next time. It actually works. What is the response to churches being you know, forced to shut down during the coronavirus? What's our response? Sue the government. Get mad, get angry. Take away our rights. Or is it nothing but Jesus, our response? Are we concerned about our neighbor, the elderly, those at risk? Or are we concerned about what Fox News is saying about coronavirus and the judicial stuff and blah, blah, blah? Or what CNN is saying about it. Nothing but Jesus applied to churches needing to close down during the coronavirus is applicable, and that is the answer. Because Christ said that nothing, not even the gates of hell, will prevail against the church. So closing for a few weeks, a Sunday morning service, and you know, the church never closed because the church has been open all along. It can't be reopened because the church isn't a building. The church is the body of Christ. Body of Christ represented in the world. What is our response to racism? Nothing but Jesus. That was the big debate. Well, that can't possibly be the answer. Is it to say, well, it's not me. I'm not a racist. I never did that. Or a broken heart that says, what can I do? How can I learn right now? How can my worldviews be challenged right now? How can I grow? Not how can I get angry because of this person or that person. How can I humble myself? Nothing but Jesus. He humbled himself. Became one of us. Went to a death. Even death on a cross. The humiliation of Jesus. A criminal's cross. He humbled himself. He was tested in every way. He's not unable to sympathize with us. Can you sympathize with others? And can you go further and empathize with them? Can you go further and, and become what they need you to be in that moment so that you can love them as Jesus loved us? So, right after this hymn to Jesus in Philippians 2, Paul uses just one word in verse 12. He uses one word in verse 12. The word that he uses is therefore. In other words, because of everything you have just heard. This is the verse I read at the beginning of the sermon. Look at what he says. Therefore, my beloved, so because of everything you just heard about Jesus, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we've twisted this verse to mean that we need to work out our, 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 our salvation with fear and trembling as if we're working for our salvation. We're not working for our salvation. We're working out our salvation. It's two different things. 
Well, what does it mean? What does it lead to? Verse 13 tells us, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Working out your faith with fear and trembling leads to God working it out of us. Just like I said earlier, taking off that skin, peeling it back and exposing what we are. It's God working it out for his good pleasure. There it is. New level of good. I would say God's good pleasure is a new level of good for sure. Work out your faith with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling isn't easy. Fear and trembling is the narrow path. Good isn't easy. God's good pleasure isn't easy. It isn't a new level of easy. It's a new level of good. I mean, again, take the current events. It's easy to say and do what your particular tribe or group or friends want you to say and do. It's easy. But it's not easy, but it is good to see every single issue through the lens of nothing but Jesus and to share from whatever that perspective is and to trust God to work it out with the results. It's easy to call out racism in someone else. But it's not easy, but it is good to discover it within yourself. To have your long-held beliefs challenged, to confess it, and to ask God to peel it away and change your heart. It's easy to paint all policemen with a broad brush and to say they're all a bunch of racists. It's not easy, but it is good to see police officers as people, as public servants, to get to know them as you have the opportunity to before you paint with such a broad brush. It's easy to paint an entire organization or church or whatever as racist because of the actions or words of a few. It's not easy, but it is good to specifically call out sin to follow the process Jesus gave us for confronting offenses and trusting God for the results. It's easy, but it's not good to riot and loot when the opportunity and excuse presents itself, and it's easy to start defending that. But it's not easy, but it is good to urge restraint of others even when they've been oppressed for thousands of years. Take it to your practical life. It's easy to be bitter against family members who have wronged you. But it's not easy, but it is good to let it go, to overlook the offense, to say to them, I love you. And that's all that matters. That's good. And good things will happen. It's easy to give your work friends and your work itself your best. And be miserable when you come home at night. And to give your family your worst. But it's not easy, but it is good to save your best for last. To not only give your family what you give your work, but to exceed that and give them the best of who you are. That's what it means for your faith to be worked out with fear and trembling. And for God's goodwill and pleasure to be worked out through you. It's easy, but it's not good to call out 
a surface behavior, surface sin. But it's not easy, but it is good to get to the sin behind the sin. The brokenness behind the brokenness. It's easy to contemplate the news, your Facebook feed, your own opinions, ethos, pathos, even logos, and to arrive at your own opinion, your own ideology through easy ways. That's easy. It's not easy, but it is good to contemplate Jesus day and night and to respond to what you see from that deep, sometimes complex, beautiful heart. It's not a new level of easy, but a new level of good. It wasn't easy, but it was so, so good for Jesus to become one of us. It wasn't easy, but it was good for Jesus to live a perfect life. It wasn't easy, but it was good for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. It wasn't easy, well, it was easy for him, but it was so good for Jesus to rise again from the dead. Work out your faith with fear and trembling. That means that something that's inside of you, the Holy Spirit of Christ, the kingdom is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. Good things are in you. All of that is in you. Let that come out through faith. Let God peel that away with fear and with trembling. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that we would be open to what it has said to us this morning. I pray that you would move us to that new level of good. In Jesus' name, amen.